0: Uh, today we're going to start the conversation with uh, Diraj Pandey as our guest. Uh, Diraj is co-founder of Nutanix, which is a grand success story, one of the fastest growing unicorns in the industry. Some of you may be familiar with the story we recently did of uh, Diraj's entrepreneur's journey in on the blog, so uh, I imagine that he he's not a new uh, phenomenon for you. But uh, today, Hiraj wanted to speak about his investment thesis and investment strategy in the tech business. So uh, so we're gonna continue the conversation we've already had on the Astra Journey series where he talked about his background as a founder um, of a really successful high growth company and the challenges thereof and we're gonna talk about investment today. Welcome, Deiraj, it's great to have you back.
1: Thank you, Sramana and uh, son, uh, for the opportunity. And yeah, it's my birthday today, so it's a special day as oh, well. Oh,
0: happy birthday. you. <laughs> well, thank you for making time for this group on your birthday. No problem. So, there uh, let's start by, um, you know, int- however you want to introduce yourself, your investment, anything you want to discuss about Nutanix or DevRev before we get into the investment, you mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. decide.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I came here to the US um, exactly 25 years ago, uh, 1997, when I was not even 22. And, uh, you know, Monica was talking about her black swan Uh, sort of event in her life, and I definitely believe in serendipities and everything that has happened is about chasing uh, a serendipity in some sense or um, I've always worked for, tried to work for small companies, so when I came here I was a PhD student and um, in a small sleepy town like Austin, Texas and obviously a lot has changed in Austin since then Um, and um, I, I mean, it was the height of the internet bubble. Um, a lot was happening in '98 when I came here to Redwood Shores for my internship uh, for summers at uh, Oracle, uh, and I decided to take a leave of absence and, um, you know, decided to join the industry. You know, worked for Trilogy Software in Austin, Texas, for a year, year and a half, and and really. Uh, Refused large company offers like Oracle and Microsoft uh, several times to come and work for a really small company that Kleiner Perkins, if you know the Kosla, had funded uh, back in the day. Worked there for three years, uh, saw the boom and the bust, uh, you know, along the way got married to my wife uh, of 22 years now, um, and uh, then went back to Oracle for four, four and a half years, and then Again, a startup for two years, and since two thousand and nine uh, you know I've been an entrepreneur um, and uh, uh, in the last i would say five years, I've turned into an investor um, but mostly a fly on the wall for most um you know stupendous entrepreneurs who I learn from and I learn with, and most importantly when when they ask me for something, it's the reason why I like to call it a win win is because it's a great rejoinder reminder for me as well as to how I need to run my own business and operations and stuff so uh, because many of these things that people ask is not something that is unique to them but it's you know also equally applicable to what I do on a day-to-day basis as well um, so yeah I think uh, you know since 2009 you know grew Nutanix to a uh, great number of friends you know we made uh, many, many, many millionaires as well along the way. You know, people, um, you know, still talk a lot about the friendships that we had there. And I took it public in 2016, and you know, in 2020, I figured I want to do something in the space of cloud service. And uh, Devrev has been that opportunity to to really think hard about uh, makers, you know, developers, product managers, and how do you get makers or creators uh closer to users because that's where the real sort of failures start to happen is when the handoffs are not good and uh, you know the listening from the users back to creators is messy and there's too many departments in the middle and there's too many tools and i think uh creating that customer love is an art and a science uh for for the question is, can you make it into an engineering, you know, and uh, that's really the opportunity at Debra for me. And 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 then we are juggling a couple of other balls uh, in my family with my chief investment officer and, and the team that he has come to have. Uh, uh, so we have a family office and um, I'm learning as well there uh, in the family office about healthcare and biotech and, you know, you mean things like uh, nuclear fusion, we go deeper into those and uh, you know, plant-based protein, uh, plant-based. Uh, Wait, is and... your
0: um, is your funding of startups from the family office, or are you have you created a vehicle, or are you just doing angel financing? How do you operate structurally? Uh,
1: so the family office is uh, a real sort of uh, uh, fund uh, with a bunch of series in there as well, and. Uh, uh, we have different classes, so you know we've kept uh, the structure because we have a real manager in in, in our CIO, and we have employees, uh, research analysts, uh, and uh, we and we'll talk about some of those questions as you get along with the interview as well. But uh, it's a single family office. Uh, you know, we don't have other families or other LPs in there, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I think we look at uh, anything from early stage to growth. Uh, we've written very large checks as well. So, uh, But at the same our, time, we uh, are...
0: Our focus is on the early stage. Let's uh, let's kind of double click down on your early stage work. Sure. What, yes. How do you define early stage first and foremost? Is it pre-seed, seed, you know, post-seed, pre-series A, series A? Where in that spectrum are you playing...
1: Uh, so, unless uh, I have known someone, we don't do seed seed. You know, I don't believe in spray and pray. But if I get to know someone over five to seven meetings, and you know, sometimes tenacity helps as well because you're like, okay, they they must succeed if they're tenacious as well. You know. Yeah. Uh, in the world of sales, you know, I basically call it you know fearless and you know sometimes we would use the word shameless you know you cannot have shame when you're asking for something you know because you're be very used
0: to hearing no all the time
1: <laughs> yeah yeah uh and so but we do series a series b's as well um you know we uh have been more and more like looking at software too but we started out with biotech and life sciences uh and uh, Uh, Lots of people that I have known in the last 15 years, Uh, you know, I'm an advisor, investor. um, And, uh, you know, it's across geographies, so it's in the U.S. uh, as well as in Bangalore.
0: Let's talk about some examples. I will get into the kind of breakdown, but let's let's talk about some examples of your favorite investments. and, And the story behind what precipitated that investment. It sounds like they're mostly from your network of people whom you have worked with or know somehow. Talk about some of the kinds of businesses that are drawing your attention right now.
1: Mm -hmm. So on the growth side, you know, we've done, we've written some large checks for, again, it's the network's network, really, not really... It's not like mm-hmm. I knew everybody uh, in the network for the for the growth side. You know, I do have a bias for growth personally, including my CIO. But uh, uh, there, it was just let's double down on things that we really believe in, um, and uh, you don't get many such opportunities in growth anyway. Uh, even though we've looked at a couple of exchanges where you can actually go into private growth side as well. Um, Companies in the space of healthcare analytics uh, in the cloud, and how uh, they are applying the principles of Maya, which is most advanced yet acceptable. You know, this is one of the principles that came from uh, a very famous American designer, um, who his name is Raymond Louis and um, he talks about the challenge of any innovation and how you try to bring something that's really advanced and it doesn't have social acceptance because people don't like revolutions but you can give them something that's evolutionary and then you can over time uh, you know really disrupt something so this idea of maya is applicable to pretty much anything that i have invested in as well as to how they've found the balance between being disruptive and at the same time making it feel to the end user or to the buyer that you know this is doable i can actually take these baby steps these uh sort of little steps and along the way i get the dopamine it's not like i have to wait three years or something or change everything around me we have invested in companies at scale uh, which manage cap tables for tens of thousands of uh, startups out there we have invested in constant glucose monitoring companies you know who are trying to really figure this out uh, in the space of wearables um, you know we have invested in uh biotech companies doing you know um uh, things that like you know uh, new drug discoveries and and things like that you know uh we have uh, looked at a lot of SaaS as well and we've invested in quite a bit of SaaS off late in the last couple of years um, and a lot of it has been around design, like, you know, how do they express express themselves through design? Because, again, design is uh, one way which endears your idea to people. Uh, so I've been yeah. bi- biased towards companies that uh, have really expressed their ideas through good design, and especially in biotech and healthcare, you know, it's been around companies that have a plan B because you need to have a plan B in case uh, plan A doesn't work. Uh, There is a lot of,
0: uh, what is an example of a a company in, in biotech or healthcare where design has been a very significant driver of adoption?
1: So this, for example, this constant glucose monitoring company, um, typically, you know and i've used these as well uh just because i'm curious about my own blood sugar uh there's a little half inch pin that pierces your uh your your body and and it's somewhat painful and uh, it only does one thing and one thing only which is uh blood sugar it's glucose um but then this company is trying to do this extremely topically at the surface with a Uh, nanotechnology like approach and and the wearable is like a watch and it can actually also go as a patch and now you have to think really hard about what else would people like to do could this get into cholesterol monitoring and other such things so it's multi-purpose as well but there's a lot of design that goes into uh, you know this too I mean like you know I I had an aura ring for a long time I gave it to my son Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, Aura is another such thing, I mean I would have loved to invest in Aura early on Mm -hmm, I just hope mm -hmm. that uh, they actually flourish over time because there's a lot that's going on in that space in wearables too which uh, is going to come down to design and reducing friction
0: Yeah, wearables I think is a very interesting industry that is going to be entirely design driven, otherwise it's not going to find that option Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, what about on the you know, IT side, whether it's healthcare IT or, you know, software-driven solutions, what have you invested in that is interesting?
1: Um, So, you know, we've done a um, late-stage, you know, growth side of investment in a healthcare analytics company, again, and they're trying to surround uh, Epic, which is kind of the mainframe of healthcare. And I think it's a very interesting sort of play because they're not going directly after the quote-unquote mainframe. And again, it's uh, how do you really take healthcare to the cloud? There's so much regulation in that industry. Uh, so you gotta do it cleverly. You gotta do it in ways that also can uh, some of this back to the patients as well, you know, which is where uh, I think the overall delight starts to come from the end users back to providers, and um, I think it becomes a very useful way to sell your technology to big hospitals. And because you know you start to see that you're engaging with uh, your patients, but then uh, it also is helpful for insurance companies because they start seeing how it could reduce their liabilities. You know, if you actually are in the space of population health, for example, and Um, you know, having patients come back on time as opposed to being reactive, how do you make them proactive and so on. So I love this space because it's not going head on after something that's very, very stodgy, but extremely bureaucratic in in the way decisions are made in healthcare, given how much regulation there is in that uh, industry. But over time, they probably will. will. They will get to the sort of main screen of the doctor when they log in and so on. I think uh doing this outside in has been extremely innovative and and I have been a big fan of uh, such a company as well. Um so yeah, I the think data uh is
0: it's kind of your DNA you you come from the data world. How do you how do you see the trends in the trends and opportunities in data? Can you like if you were starting another company today in the data space, whether it's real-time data, big data, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, is there or are there some problems that you have spotted that could be opportunities for new entrepreneurs to start new companies? I
1: think uh, it'd be cliche, but to say this right, I think you have to do this very inexpensively because people do a ton of experiments uh, in data. And I think converting data to information especially by the industry, by the vertical uh, still requires a lot of domain knowledge. Um, so like what we are doing at DevRev now is to really take a ton of this data and software engineering and customer engineering and support. Um, and um, even on the growth side, there's a lot of data on the growth engineering side. You know, So how do you create canonical models so that people don't have to go create data warehouses and do analytics on top of that. Um, I think it's still a pretty expensive thing to really crunch data into information. And finally, to even visualize it, I mean, uh, is a pretty hard problem. Uh, Even with machine learning, I think the biggest challenge is data engineering, you know, because many of the scientists, the data scientists, they're not good at engineering. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're good at science, but not, not really good at Engineering, and that includes collection, collectors, uh, all the way to masking, because, you know, you still have a lot of regulatory requirements, compliance requirements to deal with, all the way from that to transformation, to loading it on an everyday basis uh, into a massive uh, database or data warehouse or some such thing and then running some compute on it, you know, because you might have to run some logic before it actually gets ready and you know, refreshing models. All that stuff is a still a pretty complicated thing, and a couple of companies have done it well, um, but I think uh, it's still not available to every industry out there. I think we probably have made something uh, for <clears throat> the tech world, but to really make it pervasive and really bring it back to design. I think you know, it's one of the things I'll say again, how do you visualize all of that? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, New York times, uh, visualization. Mm-hmm. You know, it saved the company in almost 20 years, 15 years ago. I would say most newspapers were actually going down the drain and here comes New York times. And of course, uh, you could say it's because of their subscription model. And obviously they build their own ad network, but, at the core i think new york times is a design company and it's not just known for its font you know which they developed in 1937 and how everybody uses it today but i think the culture of design has really been a big force uh, mm-hmm. of innovation for them so i think you know at the end of the day visualizing data is still a pretty difficult challenge and developers are doing it with new tools on the browser and open source and such but I think beyond developers, if you go to non-developers, I think it's still a big challenge.
0: So um, name the companies that are very expensive to use, but at least address the kinds of problems you're talking about, data engineering, uh, visualization, what companies are on your radar, even though they're expensive, at least hit some portion of the solution. Uh, Well, we, we
1: kind of know of the... Language abstractions. I mean, uh, SQL-based data warehouses. I mean, if anything, Snowflake did an amazing job in the last ten years yeah. to make it more accessible because um, data was still locked in, you know, sort of a few people, sort of, uh, uh, I would say, bureaucracy with their hardware and things like that. I mean, I helped create some of those back at Oracle but we created big systems and these were hardware-based systems that had the traditional Oracle software, but not many people had access to it because, not because of
0: just the fact that. Very expensive.
1: Uh, Sorry, say that again, Sramana? Sounds
0: like it's very expensive.
1: Yeah, and expensive and also they're not elastic. You You just couldn't, uh, I mean, Cloud gave access to systems. not just because you could swipe a credit card, I mean, commerce was easy, but also because things were elastic and fluid, you can shut them up and spin them up on an every hour basis. So I think uh, the idea of ap- applying uh, cloud to data warehousing was a big deal. Uh, I think we see that with Databricks, for example. You know, They came up with a new abstraction of stream processing, yeah. uh, but again, done, done at scale. and of course, uh, SQL came back to them because everybody was familiar with uh, SQL as a language. So they applied SQL on top of streams. And I think it's been a really, really clever way of, uh, again, it's Maya, you know, at the end of the day, most advanced uh, idea of thinking about s- streams, but then apply SQL on top of it, look at you know windows of data, things like that in real time or near real time. Uh, but people are still struggling to build pipelines because they break all the time. There's very little observability uh, for these uh, pipelines. Uh, and you need uh, very expensive talent to manage these things at scale. End. Yeah, which is a huge
0: bottleneck.
1: Absolutely. Wow. I, mean, I mean, of course, uh, you know I can't um, forget about everything that we're doing at Adobe as well with, on the marketing side. Tons of data around customers and uh, what they use, what they don't use. I think we've done a phenomenal job of uh, you know, all the clicks that users want to do on an everyday basis and product launches and bringing it all in real time um, to the CMO's office. But I think it's early days in, in this space as well. you know.
0: So um, speaking about Adobe and visualization in particular, where where do you see the the visualization side of data? We've seen Tableau. Tableau was a very big success. Actually, uh, you know, I had, I've, we've done the Tableau case study both from the founder's point of view, as well as, uh, it was Scott Sangle from NEA who invested in Tableau, and, and he said it's one of the best ROI investments he's ever made because it took so little money to get so much return, um, but, uh, I mean, we haven't seen a whole lot on the data visualization side since then, really. Um, yeah, have, I mean, where, where, uh, have you seen anything in your data flow? Have you seen stuff that are interesting?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you look back, you peel the onion on Tableau, I think there's two things that did well. One is the visualization language. There's a domain-specific language around how do you really write a little bit of code like it's really a low code way of building dashboards and so what they did was they democratized uh, dashboard building not just through drag and drop no code which had limitations but really low code and they created a whole army of data analysts who could go and create this on the fly and so on but the second innovation that they brought this is back in 2005 through 10 because they had to compete with excel they had to make it consumer grade in terms of commerce, like credit cards over the Internet, mm-hmm. you know, $1,000 customer, two thousand, dollars dollars customers. So they have tons and tons and tons of small customers, which now we call it with a new name called PLG, Product-Led Growth. But they were one of the originals. They and Atlassian and Adobe were some of the originals, maybe even Intuit in that space, originals in PLG. Uh, and I think that carried the day for them for like 15 years or whatever you know 13 14 years until their acquisition mm-hmm. um I think if you look at what thoughtspot is doing now you know mm-hmm. I'm a big fan not just because uh, Abhijit abjit and Sudesh are really close to me but also because the way they're building it on top of snowflake um, is actually quite unique you know they mm-hmm they are taking their visualization strength and uh, really applying it on top of uh, you know a very popular data warehouse out there in the cloud. Um, and um, I think we, we actually see more visualization companies come out in the coming years, simply because of the power of the browser now. You know The browser is doing a lot. Uh, so no code definitely is, is out there. I haven't seen a low code company in the space, space of visualization uh, which has made it utterly simple and joyous to really create, uh, you know, new dashboards and such. And and I think uh, those who really create uh, immensely delightful visualizations, like New York Times, are like they are one in a million, you know, no pun intended.
0: So I think you've you've touched upon a few different open opportunities, and this is always interesting for entrepreneurs looking for ideas to build on. Number one, you've talked about the gap in the visualization space. There's still, you know, there's a lot of data solutions out there, the backend data solutions, but when it comes to presenting that data in, you know, delightful ways or really user-friendly ways, that's an area where there could be a lot more uh, done. And um, the second thing that I find interesting in where you're going is, um, A lot of technologies, especially on the data engineering side, data side in general, data handling side, are very expensive. So they're affordable for large enterprises. They're affordable for, let's say, mid-sized enterprises, but when it comes down to small businesses, it's not very accessible, just because the price point is too far out. So where is the, uh, you know, the affordable version of that, you know, one of our favorite case studies in 1M by 1M, and it, it really is tremendously popular, is uh, the Zoho case study, Shridar Vembu, taking uh, taking on Salesforce.com and, uh, and really offering something that is, that has been pervasive in the small business world. It's, it's been pervasive and definitely product-led growth, definitely very, very high adoption. Um, doing that to the more complex technologies on the data side that makes you know heavy-duty data capabilities data handling capabilities uh, accessible for the mid-market and the small businesses it seems it's still quite wide open is would you agree with that yeah
1: yeah and maybe there is a meta observation there is you know, you, you have inexpensive products, and you have easy-to-use products. Um, and many a time, they're not one and the same. That's right. And of course, you add a little bit more to it, like extensibility, customization. That's where you can't have uh, even two out of the three. You know, at least people say that uh, you can get two out of three things in life. But, you know, either you have very cheap products that are great for SMB or there's like delightfully well-designed products but they're not customizable Uh, and if you have something that's um, you know, designed well and it's highly customizable, it's too expensive
0: Yeah Well, Dheeraj if you look back at the skill set of our industry, right design is one of the lowest you know, importance skill sets you know, other than it's Steve Jobs hadn't done what he did with Apple. Design would not have even been discussed in in the tech world. That was the beginning of design coming in in a serious way into our industry, definitely on the consumer side. But we haven't seen a lot of enterprise products that are really focused on design. There's, there's very little out there that, A, can rely on a skill set of really fantastic design to, to, to hide complexity and make things seriously usable. The New York Times example that you're giving is um, it's from the consumer side and it's not from the technology, th- complex technology side at all. The complex technology side has a blind spot on design, complete blind spot on anyway, design.
1: I think it's it's very true, but things are changing. And also because of the outsiders coming in, uh, Sramana. So if you look at even wearables, I think what Apple will do to the, you know, uh, overall vertical healthcare, I think it's going to be massive. Even what yeah. Amazon will do. I mean, I look at design as not just about the user interface of interaction, but also commerce. I mean, what Amazon can do to pharmacy, I'm just so excited and stoked to say, okay, you know what, I can do That's it so differently than my local grocery store where things are still extremely arcane, you know. So yeah. I think outsiders coming in will be one way to shake this industry up. And honestly, in B2B, a lot has changed in the last 10 years. Um, I mean, we don't uh, give credit to Google for design, but one of the <clears throat> biggest things about design is is like, uh, low latency, you know, how do you really create low latency products? And they had a culture of, okay, every search result has to return within less than 100 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And that was industry transforming in many ways, you know. Uh, So the idea of giving dopamine to people in such tight loops like 100 milliseconds is as important and an invisible part of design that uh, we don't really appreciate so many companies that do that well. Uh, I think it's there. Are many more happening in the last ten years for sure. And you can see these decade. I mean, I know of many of my friends' who have children. They're very good at STEM, but they want to do art.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's the sort of self actualization of parents as well. That you know they're like you know you should you should go and pursue art and get into design and. Uh, so I'm very hopeful that uh, the coming years and and you talked about this in one of your observations that look everything has been done and uh, I feel like what we've done is is like more like physics has been done but chemistry has not been done and biology has not been done it's like it took nine billion years for biology in this universe to come so the idea of you know integrating uh, Different pieces of information from different systems, doing them really, really well through design, um, and the idea of recommendations and having bots and machines do way more than what they have. I think it's we're still scratching the surface, and simply because it's a it's a modeling problem. You know, if you can't model the data, if you can't model the industry, if you can't model the business workflows, you can do recommendations. You can do visualizations. You can't do many of these things. You know?
0: Yeah. You know, uh, this is a topic that I've been very passionate about, the, the Renaissance mind, you know, pursuing and exploring and, and leveraging the Renaissance mind, this, the cusp of the left brain, right brain mind that can handle both sides. I actually have a large body of writings on this. And uh, um, if, you, uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, there is a series that I do called Colors, where I publish paintings and I ask people to meditate. On that, on that, on just that painting for two minutes. And I published that on LinkedIn during the weekends and, and on Facebook three times a week, basically, twice during the mm-hmm. weekend and once in the middle. But the, the whole point is to draw attention to the visual impact of colors, of, you know, of, of design in general. Um, I wrote a series quite a few years ago. I can't even remember when it was. Maureen might remember. Um, on the future of Silicon Valley being at the cusp of design and and technology uh, leveraging the Renaissance mind. but it hadn't gone that way. You know I, I thought that that um, that movement of bringing those two sides together would come together within the technology space faster. But instead, we got went deep into data, into AI, into machine learning. And, and kind of the design side went by the side sidelines, and the the liberal arts side, right, the humanities side, kind of went on the sidelines. So, uh, so that is that remains still to be done. You know, we we talk about social media, right? Social media today is kind of just barely scratching the surface because it's all kind of very highly spread out and and is pray and pray kind of social media. Real relationships don't happen in that mode. Real relationships happen when you when you go deep. and the the whole social media design structure has been focused on going broad, whereas real relationships, real friendships, you call it Facebook friends, but that's not friendship. Real friendships happen when you go deep and when you actually spend in if, you, if you're talking about groups, it has to be very small groups for meaningful conversations to happen. You know, sitting around the table, when we, you know, we do a, we, before COVID, we did a lot of entertaining. Even in COVID, we have kind of cut it back to very small numbers. And actually, the conversations are much richer. When you put four to six people around the table over a meal, it's a much deeper, much more interesting conversation than if you have, you know, 50 people at a party. So mm-hmm. those nuances have not started coming into you know interaction design really
1: no I think and you're right I mean uh, in many ways you know social media had a role to play at the base of the pyramid of interaction you know because there's lots and lots and lots of I call them sand interactions you know there's billions of sand particles so you need to really figure out that interaction through digitization you know at least It's better than snail mail, you know, what you can do on Facebook and so on. So the base of the pyramid interaction was taken care of by the last 15 years of social media. Now there's a middle of the pyramid, um, you know, and we'll see whether, you know, AR and VR will actually help there. But the top of the pyramid bespoke relationships, deep relationships, you're right. It's always going to be, you know, human to human, even what we're doing right now. I mean, and we say this about remote work, that uh, you know everybody is now it's fashionable to say we are completely remote or something and no employee needs to come to work or something but it's when you're designing a new product when you're building new things when you need to go get on a whiteboard you know as nicholas talib would say you know you got to create these moments of serendipity where people just bump into each other they have hallway discussions and you know those water cooler discussions are still very important so you're right i think uh, we are scratching the surface of interaction but i feel like ai and design are actually two sides of the same coin because what machines will recommend there was a really good article in the wall street journal maybe six months ago i'll forward it to you too it's like even humans as users we actually embrace bots that are not very arrogant
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so there's this feeling of you know what uh, I'll give you a chance. Your recommendation might not be the best, but because you're humble, mm-hmm. I'm like that is telling. You know, the fact that uh, as humans we uh, look at bots that are better designed as being less arrogant says something. You know, <laughs> uh, so so we have to look at AI and design as two sides of the same coin. I mean, we struggle with notifications all day long. Like every day, we have get so many notifications. Yeah. Every app that we have come to. Uh, deploy. And uh, there's a lot that machines can do in saying, okay, they don't, you don't even care as a user for these kind of notifications and so on. So uh, the training that we as users can do to bots, but the way the bots bring back some of those uh,
0: AI is a fantastic tools. tool for designers, right? Because the the holy grail of design is simplicity. And if the complexity is managed by AI underneath and, and the the number of options of what to do in the interaction can be minimized and, and more and more accurate, more and more precise, it makes the designer's job a lot, lot, lot easier. Yeah,
1: and I think it makes the box more uh, embraceable by people, you know?
0: Yeah, well, we could keep talking for a long time. Maureen is actually providing you with the link to all of you who are listening to this conversation, the link to my Silicon Valley, The Next Decade series. And I, if, you're, if you like this discussion, this is a series that you may want to take a look at. Uh, it talks about the Renaissance mind and the salons of the, you know, of the Renaissance Paris and so on and so forth, and how ideas were, you know, being exchanged and ideas were developing in, in, in a more human context. So, uh, yes. Dival, shall we listen to Monica's pitch? Yeah, let's do that.